Section 43 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 1, Part 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dave Wills. The Stockbroker, Part 1. Upon a glass door, leading into offices on a ground floor in Token House Yard, were the words James Tomlinson, Stockbroker. It was about eleven o'clock in the morning. A clerk was busily employed in writing at a desk in the front office. The walls of this room were covered with placards, bills and prospectuses, all announcing the most gigantic enterprises, and whose principal features were large figures expressing millions of money. These prospectuses were of various kinds. Some merely put forth schemes by which enormous profits were to be realised, but which had not yet arrived to that state of maturity, the point at which the popular gullibility has been laid hold of, when directors, secretaries and treasurers can be announced in a flaming list. Others denoted that the projectors had triumphed over the little difficulty of obtaining good names to form a board, and the upper part of this class of prospectuses was embellished with a perfect array of MPs, aldermen, and esquires. The prospectuses, one and all, set forth with George Robin's flourishes and poetico-hyperbolic flowers of rhetoric, the unparalleled and outstanding advantages to be reaped from the enterprises respectfully submitted to public consideration and to the moneyed world especially. The face of the globe was a complete paradise, according to these announcements. The interior of Africa was represented to be a perfect mine of gold by the projectors of a company to trade to those salubrious parts. The cannibals of the South Sea Islands became intelligent and interesting beings in the language of another association of speculators. The majestic scenery of the North Pole and the phenomena of the Aurora Borealis were held out by a colonizing company as inducements to families to emigrate to Spitsbergen. The originators of a scheme for forming railways in Egypt expatiated upon the delights of travelling at the rate of sixty miles an hour through a land famous for its antiquarian remains and along the banks of a river where the young alligators might be seen to be disporting in the sun and numerous other prospectuses of majestic enterprises developed their original principles and prospective benefits to the astounded reader one would have imagined that any individual with a five-pound note in his pocket had only just to step into Mr. Tomlinson's office, take five shares in as many enterprises, pay one pound deposit upon each, and walk out again a man of vast wealth. Mr. Tomlinson himself was seated in a decently furnished room which constituted the private office. He was looking well, but somewhat careworn, and not quite so comfortable as a man who had passed through the bankruptcy court, got his certificate, and was in business once more, might be expected to look. In a word, he had a hard struggle to make his way respectably, and was compelled to meddle in many things that shocked his somewhat sensitive disposition. A short, well-dressed, good-humoured man, with a small, quick eye, was sitting on one side of the fire, conversing with the stockbroker. "'Well, Mr. Tomlinson,' he said, "'on those conditions I will lend my name to the Irish Railway Company proposed.' 
But remember, I require fifty shares, and I am not to pay a farthing for them. Oh, of course, cried Tomlinson. That is precisely the proposal I was instructed to make to you. The fact is, between you and me, the projectors are all men of straw. One came out of Whitecross Street Prison a few weeks ago, and another had been a bankrupt twice, and insolvent seven times, and so they must raise heaven and earth to get good names. "'Tis their only plan, their only plan,' answered the gentleman. "'And I flatter myself,' he added, drawing himself up, "'that the countenance of Mr. Sheriff Popkins is not to be sneezed at.' Oh, "'On the contrary!' "'My dear Mr. Popkins,' said Tomlinson, "'your name will soon bring a host of others.' "'I should think so, Mr. Tomlinson, I should think so,' was the self-sufficient reply. "'Well, then, Mr. Popkins, shall I make an appointment for you to meet Messrs. Bubble and Jews tomorrow morning at my office?' "'If you please, my dear sir. And now I wish you to do a little matter for me.' The fact is, I have been fool enough to take thirty shares in a certain railway company, and I have been elected a director. The company is in the most flourishing condition, and so I mean to make them purchase my shares off me. You will accordingly have the kindness to let it be known, on change, that you have my shares to sell, but you must mind and not part with them. The thing will get to the company's ears, and they will be terribly alarmed at the prospect of the injury which may be done to the enterprise by a director offering his shares for sale. They will then send and negotiate with you privately, and you can make a good bargain with them. I understand, said Tomlinson. I shall only breathe a whisper about the shares being offered for sale in a quarter where I know the rumour will immediately fly to the directors of the company. Good, observed Mr. Sheriff Popkins. Here is the script. You can tell me what you have done when I call tomorrow morning to meet Messrs. Bubble and Choose. The worthy sheriff then withdrew, and Mr. Alderman Sniff was announced. "'Mr. Tomlinson,' said this gentleman, "'I wish you to do your best for a new joint-stock company which I have just founded. This is the prospectus.' The stockbroker glanced over it and said in a musing manner, "'Ah, very good indeed. Excellent British Marble Company. <laughs> Famous idea. Capital two hundred thousand pounds in ten thousand shares of twenty pounds each.' <laughs> good again deposit one pound per share oh, that will do then comes the board of directors all good names uh, i see you have made yourself managing director well that's quite fair uh, then again auditor mr alderman sniff treasurer mr alderman sniff secretary mr alderman sniff oh, but who sells the quarry to the company oh i see "'Mr. Alderman Sniff.' "'Well, what do you think of it?' demanded the alderman. Uh, "'You ask me candidly, my dear sir.' "'I wish you to do so.' "'Then I am of opinion that you have given yourself too many situations,' continued Tomlinson. "'In the first place you found the company, and you make yourself managing director. Well and good. But then you also sell the quarry to the company.' Now, as managing director, you have to award yourself a sum for that quarry. 
As treasurer, you pay yourself. As secretary, you draw up the agreements. And as auditor, you confirm your own accounts. Perfectly correct, Mr. Tomlinson. Is it not a rule that joint stock companies are never to benefit anyone save the founder? Oh, no one denies that, answered the stockbroker. What I am afraid of is that the public will not bite when they see one man occupying so many situations in the company. Nonsense, my dear fellow. The name of an alderman will carry everything before it. Does not the world believe that the aldermen of the City of London are all as rich as Croesus? <laughs> Whereas, between you and me, returned Tomlinson with a sly laugh, there is scarcely one of them who has got a penny if his affairs came to be wound up. <laughs> and yet we live gloriously, <laughs> chuckled Mr. Alderman Sniff. But to return to my business, what can you do for me? I can certainly recommend the enterprise, answered Tomlinson. But where can the marble be seen? At my office, said the alderman. I went and bought the finest paste that was ever imported from Italy, and there it is in my counting-house, labelled British Marble, in letters at least half a foot high. Uh, where is the quarry situated? inquired Tomlinson. Uh, I haven't quite made up my mind about that yet, was the answer given by Mr. Alderman Sniff. The truth is, uh, I am going down into Wales this week, and I shall buy the first field I can get cheap in some rude part of the country. That is the least difficulty in the whole enterprise. Your plans are admirable, my dear sir, exclaimed Tomlinson, and I will do all I can for you. Will you take a glass of wine and a biscuit? No, I thank you. Not now, said the alderman. I have promised a colleague to sit for him today at Guildhall Police Court. Last week I was on the rotor for attendance there, and I reminded a man who was brought up on a charge of obtaining the three and sixpence under false pretences. Indeed, ejaculated Tomlinson, whose eyes were fixed upon the two hundred thousand pounds in the alderman's prospectus. Yes, continued Mr. Sniff, and I am going to sit today because that fellow comes up again. I mean to clear the city of all such rogues and vagabonds. I shall give him a taste of the treadmill for two months. So, good morning. By the by, call as you pass my office and have a look at the marble. And mind, he added, sinking his voice, you don't let out that it came from Italy. It is pure Welsh marble, remember? <laughs> Alderman Sniff chuckled at this pleasant idea and then hastened to Guildhall, where he fully justified his character of being the most severe magistrate in the City of London. A few minutes after Mr. Alderman Sniff had taken his departure, Mr. Greenwood was announced. "'My dear Tomlinson, I am delighted to see you,' said the capitalist. "'Really as an age, a week at least since I saw you, how do matters get on?' "'I have prospects of doing an excellent business,' answered Tomlinson. "'The numberless bubble companies that are started every day are the making of us stockbrokers. Uh, "'We dispose of shares or effect transfers and obtain our commission. "'Let the result be what it may be to the purchasers. "'And I hope that you have conquered those ridiculous qualms of conscience "'which always made a coward of you when you were in Lombard Street,' said Greenwood. "'Needs must when the devil drives,' observed Tomlinson dryly. 
"'For my part,' continued Greenwood, "'I take advantage of this mania on the part of the English "'for speculation in joint stock companies and railway shares. "'A day of reaction will come, and the effects will be fearful. "'Thousands and thousands of families will be involved in irretrievable ruin. "'That day may not occur for one year, two years, five years, or even ten years, "'but come it will.' and the signal for it will be when the House of Commons is inundated with railway and joint stock company business, and when it is compelled to postpone a portion of that business until the ensuing session. Then confidence will receive a shock, an interval for calm meditation will occur, and the result will be awful. Everyone will be anxious to sell shares, and there will be no buyers. Now, mark my words, Tomlinson, if you speculate on your own account, speculate accordingly. I do so. And you are not likely to go wrong, I know, said Tomlinson, but stockbrokers do not risk any money of their own. They have plenty of clients who will do that for them. Then you are really thriving? asked Greenwood. I am earning a living, and my business is increasing. "'But I feel hanging like a millstone round my neck. "'The thousand pounds which you lent me at twenty per cent.' "'Yes, only twenty per cent.' "'Only twenty per cent,' continued Tomlinson with a sigh. "'And I am unable to return to you more than one hundred at present, "'although I agreed to pay you two hundred every four months.' Oh, "'The hundred will do,' said Greenwood, "'and he wrote out a receipt for that amount.' Tomlinson handed him over a number of notes which Greenwood counted, and then consigned to his pocket. "'There is plenty of business to be done in the city now,' said the capitalist, after a pause. "'I contrive to snatch an hour or two now, and then, from the time which I am compelled to devote to the enlightened and independent body that returned me to Parliament, and I seldom come into the city on those occasions without lending a few hundreds to some poor devil who has over-bought himself in shares.' "'I have no doubt that you thrive, Greenwood,' said the stockbroker. "'Every man who takes advantage of the miseries of others must get on.' Oh, "'To be sure, to be sure,' cried the Member of Parliament. "'I hope that you will act upon that principle. "'I have no reason to complain of the business that I am now doing. "'I act as honestly as I can, and that principle deprives me of many advantageous affairs.' "'Then I experience annoyance from constant reminiscence of that poor old man "'who so nobly sacrificed himself for me.' "'The eternal cry!' ejaculated Greenwood. "'If you are so very anxious to find him out, put an advertisement in the Times.' "'And if he saw it, he would believe it to be a stratagem of the police to arrest him. "'You know that there is a warrant out against him. "'The official assignee took that step.' "'Well, let him take his chance, and if he should happen to be captured, "'we will petition the Home Secretary to diminish the period "'for which he will be sentenced to transportation. "'Not that such a step would benefit him much, because his age—' "'Let us drop the subject, Greenwood,' said Tomlinson, evidently affected. "'With all my heart. 
I must admit that it moves one's feelings, and, and if I met the old man in the street, I should not hesitate to give him a guinea out of my own pocket. A guinea! cried Tomlinson, and a smile of contempt curled his lips. Perhaps you would recommend me to bestow a five-pound note upon that poor Italian nobleman whom you cheated out of his fifteen thousand pounds. Well, you need not call him a poor nobleman, answered Greenwood. He is now worth ten thousand pounds a year. Indeed, a great change must have taken place then, and his fortunes, exclaimed Tomlinson. Well, the fact, in a few words, is this. A young lady, whom I knew well, said Greenwood, obtained letters of introduction from Count Alteroni to certain friends of his in Montoni, the capital of Castelcicala, to which state she repaired for the benefits of her health, or some such frivolous reason. She had the good fortune to captivate the Grand Duke. Miss Eliza Sidney, you mean? said Tomlinson. The same. Did you know her? Not at all, but I read in the newspapers the account of her marriage with Angelo the Third. Proceed. Well, the moment she married the Grand Duke, a pension of ten thousand a year was granted to Count Alteroni by way of indemnification. I have heard for his estates, which were confiscated after he had fled the country, in consequence of political intrigues. How did you learn all this? My valet, Filippo, happens to be a native of Montoni, and he seems well acquainted with all that passes in Castelcicala. Count Alteroni and his family have returned to the villa which they formerly inhabited at Richmond. I am delighted to hear this good news. You have taken a considerable weight off my mind. The transaction with that nobleman was always the subject of self-reproach. "'I dare say,' observed Mr. Greenwood ironically. Then, drawing his chair closer to Tomlinson's seat, he added, "'You are no doubt the most punctilious and conscientious of all city men. I have something to communicate to you, and must do it briefly, as I am compelled to return to Spring Gardens to meet a deputation from the Rottenborough Agricultural Society at one o'clock precisely.' and I never keep such people waiting more than an hour. "'What is considerate on your part?' said the stockbroker. "'Don't you think it is? Uh, but I did not come here for the sole purpose of chatting. The fact is, a gentleman with whom I am acquainted wants a stockbroker for a very delicate and important business. For a business,' added Greenwood, sinking his voice to a whisper, which requires a man who will be content to put five hundred pounds into his pocket for the service that will be required of him, and perform that service blindfold, as it were. I will do nothing to compromise my safety, said Tomlinson. No, you will not be required to do so, answered Greenwood. However, the gentleman I allude to will call upon you in the course of the day. I dare say, and he will then explain to you the service he has to demand at your hands. What is the name of your friend? inquired Tomlinson. Uh, Mr. Chichester, Arthur Chichester, was the reply. Chichester, Chichester, eh? said the stockbroker, musing. Surely I have heard you mention that name before. 
Ah, now, I remember. Did you not complain to me a few days ago that he had been making mischief between you and a certain uh, Sarupatabra? I did, answered Greenwood, and I certainly had good cause for anger against this same Arthur Chichester. But I had become his confidant and adviser in a certain affair a few weeks before I discovered that he had acquainted Sir Rupert Harborough with circumstances which he had better have kept to himself, and I am therefore compelled to continue my assistance and counsel to him until the affair alluded to be brought to a successful termination. Besides, as Sir Rupert and I have settled our little differences, there is no use in bearing malice, especially when something is to be gained by forbearance. <laughs> I thought you would make that admission, said Tomlinson, laughing. Well, I shall see your friend, and if, with safety, I can earn five hundred pounds, certainly in my position, I cannot afford to lose such an opportunity. That is speaking like a reasonable man, observed Greenwood. Never stick at trifles. What should I be now if I had hesitated at every step I took? Should I possess a hundred thousand pounds in good securities? Should I be enabled to gratify every wish, caprice, or desire whose object money can accomplish? Should I be the representative of one of the most independent and intelligent constituencies in England? <laughs> ah, my dear fellow, think of me and my position when you hesitate, and always make money after the well-authorized system. Honestly, if you can, but at all events, make money. With these words, Mr. Greenwood took his departure. Yes, mused Tomlinson when he was alone once more. That man is right. Make money. Honestly, if you can, but at all events, make money. That is the burden of his song. Why should it not be the chorus of mine? When I look around me, I see everyone making money upon the same plan. Sheriff Popkins does not hesitate to lend his name to a bubble, and Alderman Sniff concocts one. <laughs> and they are men of reputation, holding important offices, appearing at court, wielding power and exercising influence. This is indeed a wide field for contemplation. Why, Greenwood, in his bold, dashing manner, gains more in a day than I, in my miserable, droning fashion, earn in a month. To be afraid to touch the gold that is thrown in one's way in this wonderful city is to be a coward, a very coward. Yes, I see it all. Greenwood is right. Make money, honestly, if you can, but at all events, make money. Mr. Thompson's soliloquy had arrived at this very pleasing conclusion, just as the door of his office opened, and a clerk entered to acquaint his master that a gentleman of the name of Chichester desired to speak to him. Uh, "'Show Mr. Chichester in,' said Tomlinson. Mr. Chichester was dressed in his usually fashionable manner, and his gait had lost nothing of the care-nothing-for-anybody kind of swagger which characterised him when he was first introduced to the reader. Having thrown himself listlessly upon a chair, he said, "'I presume our mutual friend Greenwood has mentioned my name to you, Mr. Tomlinson.' "'He has. I was prepared for your visit.' Oh, "'But not for its object, perhaps,' said Chichester. 
"'I am as yet ignorant on that head,' was the reply. Uh, "'Mr. Greenwood then told you nothing?' "'Nothing, save an intimation that my services were required in a certain delicate and important matter, uh, and, and that five hundred pounds would be my remuneration.' "'Perfectly correct,' answered Mr. Chichester. "'Are you disposed to aid me on the proposed terms?' "'I must first learn the nature of the business in which my interference is needed.' Uh, "'And if you should then decline?' You, "'You shall have my solemn assurance that what you confide in me remains buried in my own bosom.' "'What is what I call a proper understanding?' exclaimed Chichester. "'You must know, then, that some three months ago I wooed and won a widow-lady, not very ugly, certainly, but whose principal attraction consisted of the sum of sixteen thousand pounds in the three and a half per cents. She was five and twenty years of age, and possessed of a sweet little house in the neighbourhood of the Cambridge Heath Gate. I met her one evening in July or August last at a party at my father's house, when I was doing the amiable to the old gentleman in order to sound his pockets, and my father whispered to me that I ought to make up to Mrs. Higgins. Certainly the name was not very aristocratic, but then her Christian name was Viola, and I thought that Viola Chichester would be pretty enough. I accordingly flirted with the widow on that occasion, and we seemed tolerably pleased with each other. I called next day, and every now and then when I had time, but I really scarcely entertained serious thoughts of making her an offer, until one day when I was desperately hard up, and I saw my friend Habra involved in such difficulties that we could not do any good together. So I got into an omnibus on Bishopsgate Street, went down to Cambridge Heath, called upon Mrs. Higgins, and then and there offered her my heart and hand. She accepted me. We had a pleasant little chat about money matters. She stated that her late husband, a wealthy builder, had left her sixteen thousand pounds, and of course I could not make myself out to be a pauper. Besides, she knew that my father was tolerably well off. I assured her that I was possessed of a few thousands, and that the old gentleman allowed me three hundred a year into the bargain. She stipulated that all her own money should be settled upon herself. I demurred to this proposal, but she was obstinate, and I then discovered that Mrs. Viola Higgins had a very determined will and a very positive temper of her own. I thought to myself, here is a charming widow who throws herself into my arms, and who possesses a decent fortune. <laughs> it would be madness to neglect so golden an opportunity of enriching myself. Besides, I reasoned, uh, when once we are married, it will be very easy for me to wheedle the affectionate creature out of any money that I may require. Well, I consented to the settlement of all her property upon herself, and in due course we were married. I did not mention the matter to any of my West End friends, because I did not like to invite them to the wedding. I was afraid their off-hand manners would alarm the bride and give her an unfavourable opinion with regard to myself. So the business was kept very snug and quiet, and we passed the honeymoon at my wife's sister and brother-in-law's, very decent people in their way, and dwelling at Stratford-le-Bow. 
On our return to London, I thought it time to break the ice in respect to my own pecuniary situation. The truth was that I had not a penny piece of my own, and that my father had long since withdrawn his support, in consequence of the immense drains I had made upon his purse. I was, moreover, encumbered with debts, and some of my tradesmen had found me out, and began to call at the house at Cambridge Heath. They even used menaces. My position was truly critical. I did not marry the widow merely with a view to take her out for a walk, sit by the fireside chatting, or read a book while she worked. I wanted money, money to pay my debts, money to enjoy myself with. Accordingly, I broke the ice by very candidly avowing that I had not a shilling. I, however, swore that her beauty and accomplishments had alone induced me thus to deceive her. But, oh, the vixen! She flew into such a passion that I thought she would tear my eyes out. She raved and wept and wept and raved, and then reproached and taunted, until I wished one of us at the devil and scarcely cared which went there. The scene ended in Viola's falling into a fit of hysterics, and she was compelled to go to bed. I was most assiduous to her, and my attentions evidently softened her. In a few hours she grew calm, and then said, "'Arthur, you have deceived me grossly, but I can forgive you. I do not regret the loss of the wealth and income which you led me to believe were yours.' I am only sorry that you should have thought it necessary to practice such a measure to induce me to marry her. Well, but let what is past be forgotten. The income derived from my property is sufficient for us, and if you will be kind and good to me, this deception shall never more trouble our happiness. End of section 43, part 1